Good morning, everyone. As a kid, I really enjoyed going to summer camp, and I know this is something that's been disrupted by the coronavirus for a lot of kids because they're not going to camp this summer, and that's a shame because I always loved it. I really looked forward to it. My parents always said they needed a break for me, though I can't imagine why. I usually went for two weeks, one week with the YMCA and one week with the Scouts, and coincidentally, both weeks were at the same facility in southern Indiana, a place called Camp Carson. It was a great camp, probably still is. It had a great lake, lots to do. My favorite things were uh, the shooting range where we learned how to target shoot with a 22 caliber rifle and the waterfront because that was the best, especially on the really hot days. The highlight of the waterfront at Camp Carson back then was a series of six or seven gymnastic rings that were set out on a wire cable over the water. The idea was you just swing like a monkey from one wing to the next and then when you got to the end, you did your crazy dismount into the water and your buddies would rate your dismount extra points for a face plant. For middle school age boys, I mean, that was just heaven. Show off your physical skills and then be a clown, belly flop into the lake. But the trick was the rings were set just far enough apart that you couldn't just reach them by stretching with an easy swing. Now you had to launch yourself out hit the next ring with your foot and get it swinging, and then time your movement just right so that you'd let go of the first ring, fly through the air a little bit, hopefully catch on to the second ring without losing your grip. And you had to do that all the way to the end. It was kind of an early version of an obstacle you might see on American Ninja Warrior. So it took some skill, some timing, and getting those rings to swing at just the right pace so that you could move from one to the next, that's what made it a challenge, that's what made it a lot of fun. Well, this summer, we're looking at a portion of Jesus' teaching from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, a portion that's called the Beatitudes, which is the Latin word for blessed or blessed, because Jesus begins each of these statements with that word. The Beatitudes, they're eight crisp, kind of concise phrases that describe, I guess what you might call the distinguishing marks of a person who lives under the blessing of God. One thing I want you to know this morning is that there's a pattern in the Beatitudes. Jesus places them in a particular order for a reason, and we'll see they're split four and four. Each Beatitude builds on the ones that come before it, and you can't skip ahead. Like the rings over the lake at Camp Carson, to move from one ring to the next, you have to grasp them in order. And that's true of the Beatitudes. The only way to get to like ring five of forgiveness or the sixth ring of purity, the seventh ring of peace, is by means of the other rings that come before. You can't start at number five. You have to start at the beginning with ring number one. And that's where we are today, the first beatitude, where Jesus said, blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3. The first blessedness goes to those who are poor in spirit, poor. The Greek word for poor used here means the person who has nothing at all. It does not describe, you know, the hardworking poor, the, the people who are doing their best and just getting by, work hard, just can't, you know, earn quite enough, the ones who can barely pay their bills at the end of the month. No, the word Jesus used describes the person who has absolutely nothing and no prospects of getting anything. I mean, absolutely destitute. The refugee who has to run out into the night with just the clothes on his or her back. The person who saw their house and, and all their belongings burned to the ground and had no fire insurance. The kind of poverty that has sunken eyes and a hopeless gaze. Jesus said, blessed are the spiritually poor who are like that. 
the spiritually destitute. What Jesus is saying is that poverty is not just a matter of finances. I mean, other places in the Bible deal with God's heart for the poor in pocketbook, but this is different. This is poor in spirit. And every one of us faces some kind of poverty. We all have a need at some level in our lives. We all have places where we lack, where we don't have enough, where we don't feel like we have enough. Could be a lack of success in our chosen profession, direction, lack of a dream, a goal for life. Could be intellectual poverty, emotional poverty, a lack of love, a, a lack of respect. Could be a lack of understanding. Could be you don't feel like you're getting the affirmation that you need. And so ask yourself, where in your life do you feel you don't have enough or you feel like you're not enough? That's how to begin to understand spiritual poverty. You and I all have our soft spots, our blind spots, our weak links, our ignorant areas, our poverty pockets, and they're not necessarily related to finances. Mother Teresa, who worked with the dying people on the streets of Calcutta, once said, in India, people are dying of physical starvation. In America, people are dying of emotional and spiritual starvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What Jesus is mainly pointing out is at the very beginning point of having a relationship with God, the, the starting point of living the life Jesus, living life Jesus' way, means we have to recognize our spiritual poverty. Being poor in spirit is the opposite of saying, you know, I've led a good life, I'm better than the next guy, I've done enough good things to get my ticket to heaven, my good deeds, you know, they outweigh my bad ones. God's just gonna welcome me with open arms. Being poor in spirit just pops that balloon, that spiritual ego that sort of inflates ourselves before God. Being spiritually poor means recognizing just how far we fall short in relation to God. It means taking a posture of humility before God and actually before life itself. I don't know if you remember the story Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisees, if you remember, they're the religious elites, the professionals of his day. They set all the religious rules for the Jewish community, and they followed all those rules religiously because they thought that that's what you do to make yourself right with God, keep the rules. Tax collectors were like loan sharks. They were not well-liked or respected. They were cheats. They were petty crooks. They were exploiters. And so Luke 19 goes like this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evil, uh, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is saying, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, the deprived, the deficient, the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what this first beatitude is all about. Jesus has a soft spot for people who know they're spiritually poor, people who are honest enough to admit their need, people 
who don't kind of puff themselves up with a ton of, of justifications. People who take this low position, who humble themselves. This blessedness that Jesus offers to the spiritually poor, it's not something that you will enter eventually, but something you've entered already as you recognize your poverty before God. It's not a blessedness postponed to some future world of glory, but a blessedness that exists here and now because it frees you when you're so honest with yourself that you see your spiritual poverty before God. Because the blessing is his presence and his power and his grace is already here for you. God's right here for you right now if you'll receive him. God is right here for you right now in your spiritual poverty. And if you weren't aware of your spiritual poverty, you'd miss God's presence too. God is unknowable to the spiritually proud. God is unknowable to the spiritually proud. Thomas Watson was a Puritan Presbyterian pastor in England in the mid-1600s. He was called a dissenter because he was often thrown in prison because he challenged the authority of the Church of England. He lost his church, he lost his income, he had a pretty rough go of it. And he wrote what might be the classic commentary on the Beatitudes that every writer today builds on whether they realize it or not. He writes this about this very first Beatitude. Till we are poor in spirit, we are not capable of receiving grace. He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. He is full already. If the, if the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. The glass is first emptied before you pour in the wine. God first empties a man of himself before he pours in the precious wine of his grace. Till we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. Before we see our own wants, we never see Christ's worth. Poverty of spirit is salt and seasoning, the sauce which makes Jesus, makes Christ relish sweet to the soul. When a man sees himself almost wounded to death, how precious will the balm of Christ's blood be to him. When a man knows he is spiritually starving, he will do anything for the bread of life. I really like that. Till we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. Unless you know your spiritual poverty, you will never know the full riches of Christ. But our spiritual poverty is often not recognized, not often owned. Why? Well, it's because people are too proud, too fearful, too distracted to come to grips with the depth of our spiritual poverty. They're still trying to make it on their own because this idea of being spiritually poor goes against our cultural impulses to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. We're told to combat you know, low self-esteem, promote yourself, you know, just enhance that resume. Don't play second fiddle to anybody. Somebody encroaches on your space, will you get in their face? Our culture seems to reward people who are so full of themselves. The way of Jesus goes against that. The aim of the first beatitude is to make us sure that we see faith in Jesus is not just a backup plan. It should be our first impulse to treat people the Christ way, the way Christ treats, treats us with, with grace and humility. The aim of the first beatitude is to bring all who hear it to a place of awareness and decision, to be deeply aware that there is no security, no hope, no foundation besides Jesus Christ. Only the person who recognizes his or her spiritual poverty can experience that kingdom of God. You see, the Beatitudes are not instructions on how to get blessed. They're not instructions really on how to do anything. They just are explanations of reality, explanations 
of the present availability of God's forgiveness and Christ's power through the person of Jesus. The power of God is available in our life circumstances that are beyond human hope when we recognize we're spiritual zeros. You've probably heard the expression, God helps those who help themselves. Folks, I hope you know that's not in the Bible. I think that's Ben Franklin. The Bible, or the Beatitude would say exactly the opposite. God helps those who cannot help themselves. In the words of Dallas Willard, he says this, God is for you who are not the best and the brightest, those who are too fat, too ugly, too short, too tall, with thinning hair and bad complexions. Blessed are the physically repulsive, those who smell bad, the twisted, misshapen, deformed, too big, too little, too loud, too wrinkled, too old, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the shoved aside, the replaced, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved, the flunkouts, dropouts, burnouts, broke and broken. In other words, everyone. Blessed are you as you flee into the arms of Jesus, the kingdom one, for you are all wonderfully welcomed, wonderfully welcomed into the kingdom of Jesus. No human condition excludes God's blessedness. God's care and provision is for all who will receive it. No one is beyond beatitude because the rule of God is available to all. Everyone can reach it and it can reach everyone. The first step on this path to a deeper relationship with God is to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy before him. Realize your utter helplessness, that you can't live without God's supernatural intervention. And then you put your trust in Jesus because Jesus is more than just a religious teacher. He is also the one who saves. Many of you are probably familiar with Oswald Chambers' classic devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. He writes this, Jesus is not just a teacher. If he was just a teacher, then all he is doing is to just tantalize us with impossible standards I cannot attain. I would be happier not knowing. I must know Jesus as Savior before any of his teachings really begin to make any sense. He can begin to rule my life. We would be in despair if left on our own. The Beatitudes would, would lead to nothingness, hopelessness without a Savior. So we come to him as beggars, paupers, not self-righteous, conceited, not saying I can do it myself. We come with a sense of absolute futility, empty-handed. I cannot begin to do it. And then Jesus says, you are blessed. This is the entrance. The knowledge of our poverty takes us to the frontier where Jesus Christ works. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is beginning to inject his kind of life in you to turn you into the same kind of person God wants you to be. In this beatitude, he's saying a deeper reality is ours. Jesus is challenging us as his disciples to live in the way that he himself was living, discovering the availability of the kingdom of God right now. Understanding this first beatitude means saying, I've got to begin again. It means saying to God those three very important words, I need help. If you're too proud, too afraid to admit that you're hurting, don't be surprised if nobody seems to care. If you're too proud, proud to say to God that you need his help, don't be surprised if God seems silent and far away. The psalmist said it this way, Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So face up to your poverty, humble your attitude, acknowledge your weakness, ask God for help. Everyone is poor 
in spirit in his or her own way. So surrender your arrogance and pride and ask for help. Don't let false pride keep you from crying out to God. As Pastor Tim Keller writes, only when we see the depth of our sin will we be electrified by the wonder of his grace. As we move from our initial salvation to living for Jesus every day, being poor in spirit means adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul describes it this way. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset as Jesus. That's what this beatitude challenges us to do. To lay aside pride, ego, self-righteousness, to stand empty-handed before God like the words of that old hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply thy cross, to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. So how do we apply this beatitude to life here and now? Specifically, how does being spiritually poor maybe apply to our current conversation about race relations? Well, let me be really honest with you a moment about one area of struggle that I've had in the recent weeks, and it comes over the phrase, Black Lives Matter. When that phrase first originated like five or six years ago, I wanted to know more about it. I went to the original BLM official website. It was very Marxist, very socialist, seemed to be promoting violence, and it tied the BLM movement to a whole host of other issues that I, as a Christian, I just couldn't possibly support. So I was never a fan of that phrase. I couldn't really warm up to it. I was one of those people who would maybe want to add, yes, but, you know, yes, black lives matter, but all lives matter too. That would have been my response because I tied the phrase to the official BLM organization. I couldn't separate the two. But what has happened is that over the years, and especially this spring, the phrase Black Lives Matters has taken on a whole life of its own far beyond the official BLM organization. Black Lives Matters now expresses the emotions of the African-American community in a way that is not automatically attached to the official BLM movement. But as a white conservative person, that was really hard for me to wrap my head around, to hold those two ideas in tension that you can say Black Lives Matter without endorsing the official BLM organization and all the stuff that goes with it. I've been trying to wrap my head around that phrase and why it's so offensive to black people if you then have to add all lives matter in response. I really wanted to figure that out. I think part of being poor in spirit is being willing to admit, you know, I know what I don't know. I know what I don't know. And for me, that meant saying at the very least, being able to say, I don't know what it's like to be black in America. I don't know what it's like to be black in America. I may have ideas or impressions or preconceived notions, but I really don't know what it's like to be black in America. I need to be humble enough to just admit that. And then in humility, listen. Begin to listen. In humility, begin to listen without arguing or defending, just listen. And I was praying about just that. I was saying, Lord, help me to listen. So a couple weeks ago, I attended a rally in Plainfield where most of you know I volunteer as a police chaplain. Plainfield is almost 100% minority community. I've been volunteering there as a chaplain for six years, 
particularly so that I could develop relationships with black pastors, police officers, and other people of color in that community. And like for almost a year, I spent every Friday afternoon, a couple of hours at the high school, at Plainfield High School with the police school resource officers there. Just getting to know the students, helping out as I could, helping with tutoring, all kinds of things. I wanted to do something positive that could help build a bridge of understanding. So a couple weeks ago, I'm at this rally at the Plainfield Municipal Building with several thousand people, and I'm one of very few white people in the crowd. I mean, a handful of white faces kind of sprinkled throughout the plaza, but almost everyone right around me is black. And I'm listening to the speeches and the chants, and I noticed that all the men around me were wearing the exact same t-shirt. It was a black t-shirt with big white letters saying, Black Lives Matter. And I gotta tell you, I started to feel uncomfortable. I started to feel like, you know, is this a smart place for me to be? I was looking around and wondering, you know, should I, you know, like move someplace else? And then a little voice went off in my head, and I think maybe it was the Holy Spirit. A voice that asked, why are you feeling uncomfortable? No one had threatened me. No one had treated me badly. No one had looked at me sideways. My discomfort was totally based on something deep inside of me when I saw all those Black Lives t-shirts. And then I noticed standing closest to me was a man with his son who was maybe nine or 10 years old. The father wore the same Black Lives Matters shirt, but the son's shirt was a little different. His shirt said, my life matters, my life matters. And that was my aha moment, my life matters. Because I finally realized there's probably no white boy in this whole country who's ever had to worry that his physical safety might be threatened or compromised simply because of the color of his skin. And that fear for one's physical safety, fear of being devalued, that fear of being discarded is very real for black Americans in a way that I can't stand, understand. It's a very real and intense in a way that I can't possibly understand or feel as a white person because I've never been in a situation where I ever had to doubt the value of my life based on my skin color. I've never had to worry that if I got stopped by a police officer, I might get shot. I never had to feel what it's like to be treated differently because of the color of my skin. And this 10-year-old boy was already experiencing the, the pain and the brokenness of our sinful world through the evil of racism. And he was making a statement against the world that might seek to diminish his life and diminish his value as a child of God. My life matters. Okay, now I get it. Now I understand why it's important for me to be able to say Black Lives Matter. Why it's important for Christians to come to the point of being able to say Black Lives Matter and then put a period at the end of that sentence. No addendums, no equivocations, no add-ons to just be able to say sincerely Black Lives Matter without having to add, you know, All Lives Matter or Asian Lives Matter or Hispanic Lives Matter, White Lives Matter, to be able to say that Black Lives Matter without adding a disclaimer about the official Black Lives Movement or adding a caveat about any of the other issues that can get connected to that phrase. Just to be able to say Black Lives Matter, period. What I finally understood is that if you have to add another phrase, then it means you really haven't been listening to the unique experience of black people in America who have and still do worry about their physical safety simply because of their skin pigmentation. And that's why it feels insulting to African-Americans when we feel like it's necessary to add on something to that phrase. As those who are followers of Jesus, 
people who, according to this beatitude, are supposed to seek to model his love in this broken world, those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their own spiritual poverty, who place themselves in a posture of humility, as those who can acknowledge that we don't know everything, and so consciously, prayerfully, we take the path of a learner, we should be able to say Black Lives Matter, period. To be able to say it, even if people will misunderstand and think you're endorsing some radical agenda, Christians need to be able to say Black Lives Matter, period. And as I say that, as you listen, is your brain starting to sputter like the outboard engine on a little boat, you know, but, 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 but. If it is, then I'd like for you to ask yourself, where does that come from? Where does that objection rising in your heart, where does that come from? Because that's what I had to ask myself as I read that boy's t-shirt. Does it come from a place of health and wholeness in my life? Does it come from a Christ-like love and humility? Or does it come from a place of fear, a place of righteous indignation, a place that in my world, where I have a sense that my world is being threatened? Could it come from a blind spot in your life, a hidden pocket of prejudice that you've not really been able to face in the past? I can't answer that for only. Only you can do that as you go before the Lord and sort that out. But I do want to challenge all of us to understand we all do have blind spots, black and white. Blind spots where we operate more out of our own needs and unhealthy motivations, where we still operate out of our old flesh rather than the humility of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the people who start from a posture of humility, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So just to be clear, so I won't be misquoted, I do not support the Black Lives Matter official organization, but I can say that with, without equivocation, that Black Lives Matter, period. And I'm trying to take a posture of spiritual poverty when it comes to moving forward on all the crucial issues, racial issues of our day. I hope you'll join me in that journey towards Christ-like humility by beginning to listen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Recognizing our spiritual poverty is what gets us onto that first swinging ring. It's what enables us then to reach out for the second ring next week and the third and the fourth after that. As Jesus shows us the way to live our new life in Christ through these wonderful eight Beatitudes. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for just the model, the example, the teaching of Jesus, but also the fact that he is our Savior. And as we come to him first as our Savior, we recognize the vast gulf between us and you, Lord. We need a savior. We cannot do it on our own. We can't address any of these issues in our country on our own, Lord. We have to come in a posture of humility before you, acknowledging our deep sinfulness, Lord, and our need for a savior. Help us to be able to look up to you and say, I need help. I need help, Lord Jesus, each and every day. Help us to turn to you and help us to receive the wonderfulness of your grace, Lord. As we recognize our poverty, we also recognize your great riches, Lord. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.